You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. As as some of you probably know, uh, today, uh, as well as yesterday, is Rosh Chodesh Elul, um, which uh, is the beginning of the month of Elul, which is the month leading up to the high holiday season. Um, And uh, it is uh, traditionally supposed to be a month of preparation and uh, introspection uh, and uh, self-analysis, the Hebrew term is cheshbon ha-nefesh, uh, soul-searching, soul-calculation, um, that we do during the month of Elul to prepare ourselves spiritually and emotionally for the high holidays. Uh, and so in that spirit, um, I want to offer a confession tonight. So the confession is this. The text that we're going to learn tonight was not a text that I chose because it was one that I... Uh, particularly love or uh, has driven my life in the way that uh, some of the other texts that we've looked at have. Um, The text I chose tonight, I chose for a few reasons. The first is uh, because I wanted to have a six-week class because I saw there were basically six weeks between when I started and uh, and the beginning of September, at which point I wanted to switch over to high holiday topics. Um, And uh, um, and so I thought of five texts from the Torah that I just love. And then I said to myself, well, you know, I can't really call this a six spectacular scriptures class and say, what are my favorite biblical texts if all I have are texts from the Torah, right? There are two other sections of the Jewish Bible, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and Ketuvim, uh, the, uh, the hagiographer, the other writings. And so I said, well, you know, I, I mean, I guess having five out of six be Torah is okay, but at least one needs to not be Torah. And so then I started thinking about what I wanted to teach about, and I looked at the calendar and realized that this class would fall on Rosh Chodesh Elul. Uh, and so I said, oh, that's great. So maybe I'll teach something from the Torah that has something, or from the Tanakh that has something to do with the high holidays. And there's a lot that we could potentially choose from. I mean, the Haftorah on Yom Kippur morning, for example, from Isaiah, um, is absolutely magnificent and uh, is worth a close study. And maybe, um, hopefully, we'll, I'll be here for a long time. We'll have an opportunity to study that together. Um, there's uh, the Akedah, the, the, the Binding of Isaac. Of course, that's the Torah. But um, there's so much related to the high holidays that we can study. Um, but there's one text that always, in a way, intrigued me and kind of confounded me that relates to the high holidays. And it's the text we're going to study tonight, which is Psalm 27. So Psalm 27 is, you know, every day uh, um, during the year, we have a uh, shir shel yom, a psalm that's reserved uh, for that day. Many of you uh, may be most familiar with the one that's uh, for Shabbat, where it starts, Mizmor shir liyom ha-shabbat, tov lehodot ladernai l'zam erlashim chal yon. Uh, it's good to claim God and to uh, uh, sing praise uh, to the Most High. Uh, and so that's the one we sing on, on Saturday. But every day has a, has a Shir Shalyom, has a psalm for the day. Uh, and on special days, like Rosh Chodesh uh, and in other occasions, we add an additional psalm that corresponds to that day. So during the whole month of Elul and, uh, and, and on through um, uh, Sukkot, we recite 
this psalm, Psalm 27, in addition to the daily psalm. And it begs the question, always to me, of why the rabbis chose this psalm in particular to be the one that we uh, recite leading up to and during the high holidays. Clearly, the rabbis thought that there was a connection here between the words of this psalm and the high holidays, um, although you'll see, looking at the psalm, it's not readily apparent. So one of the things I want to do tonight in talking about this psalm, and I hope you'll forgive me for not being extraordinarily personal about it, but I just want to kind of explore the psalm itself with you and also think a little bit together about why it is, how it is connected to the high holy day season um, and also what it can offer us in, in our lives and what it offers me in my life. All right, so here's what I want to do. Um, first of all, I want to make sure, Lois, can you read, do a reading of the air conditioning there and we'll see what, what, uh, what we're set to? It's on, it's set to 72? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. All right. So maybe yeah, it's just me. So I'm going to be a little bit more casual. Too. Oh, you're warm too? Oh, okay, so maybe it's not working. I don't know. I'm going to just be a little more casual then. Um, and uh, and if, you, uh, if, you're, if you're a little schmitzy, there's plenty of water back here. And, uh, and, and, uh, and just yell at the lowest. You can turn, turn it down a little bit. Um, okay. So the, the first thing I want to do is... By way of introduction... And to give away the punchline at the beginning, I think that this psalm is ultimately about prayer and why we pray and what we pray for and what business we have praying in the first place. So what is, what is it that we're doing when we are standing in synagogue or standing at home or sitting um, at a person's bedside um, or... Uh, any of the other scenarios in which we might pray or offer prayers, what is it that we are doing in that context? And so I think at its core, um, that's really what this psalm is about. And it offers, I think, um, when, I, when I got to studying it um, and, uh, and really tried to wrap my head around what it was really getting at, I actually felt that it profoundly resonated with, uh, with its message, or at least what I read its message as. Of course, the Bible sometimes can be kind of a Rorschach test, um, so you can kind of you know, see yourself in the text, um, uh, even if that's not really what the text is saying. So I may be reading uh, myself into this text, and it's not really what the text is saying, and you can let me know uh, what you think. Um, but that's, I think, really um, what it's getting at here, uh, and what it's about. And so that's, in part, why it's titled, What Do You Ask of God? And I'm sure that all of us uh, in a time in our lives, or maybe several times in our lives, have thought about that question of, what what do I want to ask God for? Or what do I need to ask God for? Um, And then, what's the nature of that moment in which I ask God for something? um, And uh, what am I expecting to be the return on that ask? So that's the question. And the other reason, by the way, that I chose this topic is I thought that it went nicely with last week's, you know, what does God ask of you? And then this week is what do you ask of God? And you'll see why uh, it, within the psalm, why I titled it, what do you ask of God? <coughs> All right. So the first thing I want to do is read it in the Hebrew just for the music of it, because the psalms are poetry, um, really extraordinary, exquisite, beautiful poetry, sometimes very difficult to understand because uh, the, the author of the Psalms uses poetic language and uses words that are uh, 
I love that I get to use this term, uh, hapax legomena. Uh, they, are, <laughs> they are words that are uh, um, only spoken, written once in the entire corpus of the Tanakh. Okay? So there's a lot of those kind of words in the, in the Psalms. So the Psalms are very rich and dense in their, their poetry, um, and they should be read and I think appreciated um, as, as poetry. Um, and they, that's probably uh, what they were um, initially. The Psalms, by the way, I mean, I know that they're, I don't want, you can, if, you, if you have like a, you know, a heresy alarm, you can cover your ears for this. Uh, but uh, I, I know that, that traditionally the Psalms are um, ascribed uh, authorship to King David. Um, and it does not appear um, that, um, that the Psalms were written by one author throughout. Um, it appears that the Psalms are really a composite work of a lot of different authors um, and uh, incorporating works from a lot of different contexts. Right. So, for example, there's a whole section uh, in uh, in uh, um, around chapter one. 20-ish of psalms that uh, start with Shir HaMa'alot or Shir LaMa'alot, so a song of ascents, right? We know that the, the psalm we introduced the, tor, the, um, the Birkat HaMazon for uh, when on Sabbath and holidays is Shir LaMa'alot, um, a song of ascents. Those were psalms that were um, uh, used during the temple service or were offered uh, by pilgrims as they ascended the steps of the temple. So those poems um, that were probably written by pilgrims as they ascended uh, the temple steps and reflected on it, got incorporated into this anthology, really, of, uh, of poetry that is the Book of Psalms. And the, the psalm that we're going to look at um, uh, is written as of David, or for David, which is the beginning Le David, which is part of why a lot of the psalms begin Le David, it means of David or for David. Uh, a lot of the psalms begin that way, um, and, uh, and that's part of why traditionally uh, they're ascribed to King David, uh, but um, the psalm that we're going to look at uh, and hopefully I'll get a chance to point out uh, here and there where, where I think uh, is relevant. Um, the psalm itself that we're looking at was probably uh, written by multiple people. It looks like two different poems pieced together in some ways. Uh, maybe more. Was there a question? Um, but anyway, if you have an opportunity to, uh, to, to read the book of Psalms and to uh, first of all, to be able to do so in the original is just exquisite. Uh, but even if not, um, if you look, if you get a book, uh, um, the, the best translation of Psalms, I think, if you want to read it as poetry, is uh, um, uh, Robert Alter, um, who's a Bible scholar, contemporary Bible scholar, wrote a translation of Psalms. I have some of his commentary here. Um, and Robert Alter wrote a magnificent translation of the whole book of Psalms. Um, and uh, it's called the Book of Psalms, so you can uh, find it that way. I mean, you're sure you can find it on Amazon and things like that. Um, and uh, so I just commend to any of you, uh, especially if you're a lover of poetry, um, to, to read the Psalms as uh, as poetry will just be an, an, a delicious experience. So I'll commend that to you. And so I want to read the Hebrew of this just to get a sense of the music of it first. David Adonai Orivi Yishi Mimi Ira Adonai Maoz Chayai Mimi Efchad Bikrovalai Meriim Lechob Sari Tsarai Veoivaili Hema Kashalu Venafalu Im Tachane Alai Machane Loira Libi Im Takumalai Milchama Bezotani Boteach Achat Shaalti Meet Adonai Ota Avakesh Shifti Bevet Adonai Koyume Chayai 
לחזות בנועם אדוני לבקר בהיכלו. כי יצפנני בסוכה ביום רעה יסתירני בסתר אוהלו בצור ירוממני. ואתה ירום ראשי על אויבי סביבותי ואזבחה באוהלו זבחי תרועה אשירה ואזמרה לאדוני. שמע אדוני קולי אקרא וחונני וענני. לך אמר ליבי בקשו פני את פניך אדוני אבקש. אל תסתר פניך ממני אל תת באף עבדך עזרתי היית אל תתשני ואל תעזבני אלוהי אישי. כי אביו אמי עזבוני ואדוני יאספני. הורני אדוני דרכך ונחני באורח משור למען שורריי. אל תתנני בנפש שרי כי קמו בי אדי שקר ויפה חמס. לולא האמנתי לראות בטוב אדוני בארץ חיים. קווה אל אדוני חזק ויאמץ ליבך וקווה אל אדוני. Of David, the Lord is my light and my help, whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, whom should I dread? When evil men assail me to devour my flesh, it is they, my foes and my enemies, who stumble and fall. Should an army besiege me, my heart would have no fear. Should war beset me, still would I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, only that do I seek. To live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to frequent his temple. He will shelter me in his pavilion on an evil day, grant me the protection of his tent, raise me high upon a rock. Now is my head high over my enemies round about. I sacrifice in his tent with shouts of joy, singing and chanting a hymn to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Have mercy on me. Answer me. In your behalf, my heart says, Seek my face. O Lord, I seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not thrust aside your servant in anger. You have ever been my help. Do not forsake me. Do not abandon me, O God, my deliverer. Though my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will take me in. Show me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my watchful foes. Do not subject me to the will of my foes, for false witnesses and unjust accusers have appeared against me. Had I not the assurance that I would enjoy the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Look to the Lord. Be strong and of good courage. O oh, look to the Lord. As I was reading that, and as I was thinking about the fact that this is a psalm uh, really at its core about the experience and the, and the uh, meaning of prayer, uh, it occurred to me that uh, I didn't offer our opening prayer for our session today as has uh, become the custom. So I just, if you'll permit me before we dig into each uh, line by line, just a quick uh, prayer. Ribbono shalala, majesty of space and time. If we, we begin our cl- class, our learning tonight thinking about and having our eyes toward standing in your presence in the coming month and during the high holy day season. Guide us in our ability to know ourselves and determine where it is that we have missed the mark and to give us the strength that we need in order to turn ourselves around no matter how stuck we are and to craft lives for ourselves of goodness, of righteousness, 
and of peace in the world in the in the year to come. Amen. Amen. Okay. So the psalm starts of David, right? Now, if you remember, I just said that, uh, that traditionally the psalms are ascribed to David as the writer of them. Let's put that aside for a second and just assume that this is an author who wrote this psalm and labeled it Le David to David. So that means that the author of this psalm wants to connect the psalm in some ways to David. And that was a common thing uh, that people would do in the ancient world. It wasn't... Uh, plagiarism, it wasn't uh, forgery, um, you would write a book as, say, Daniel, right? The book of Daniel is a great example of this. You would write a book as, uh, as Daniel, uh, even if you're not named Daniel and you're not a prophet named Daniel living at the time, you'd write it as that um, to, uh, to say, here's what I think that prophet would have said or would have thought or would have been thinking about had he actually written a book. Or this is something that I feel is inspired by the life of that person or connected to that person. In some ways, this poem is, uh, is dedicated to that person. Okay, So that's, I think, what uh, it means of David here. But let's go back for one second and tell me what you know about King David. Other than the fact that he was at some point a king. Yeah. He started out as a Good. He started out as a shepherd. Um, and uh, if you uh, know anything of that story, it's very interesting. Not only was, just he, was he just a humble shepherd, uh, but he was also the youngest of, uh, of a group of very rugged and muscular, uh, kingly-looking brothers. And when the prophet Samuel uh, was going to look for the next king of Israel, he went to uh, the house of somebody uh, named Jesse, uh, at, which is where God told him to go and say, God said, your next king is going to come from the house of Jesse. And so Samuel goes, and he talks to Jesse, and he says, I got good news for you. One of your sons is going to be king. And Jesse says, oh, well, you know, it's got to be my firstborn son, this you know, rugged, strapping young man. He's got an ox on his shoulder, right? Um, he's carrying a hatchet, right? And Samuel looks at him and says, no, that's not the guy, right? And then, well, it's got to be, you know, bachelor number two, right? Samuel's there holding a rose. It's a very awkward thing. So... Um, <laughs> Finally, little Jesse comes back in, and little David, excuse me, comes back in from the field, this little red-headed kid, right, this ruddy kid, um, and uh, God says, that's the one, and Samuel's like, what? And, uh, and God says the, a line that I think is one of the most wonderful lines in all of the Tanakh, it says, God doesn't see like people see. People look with their eyes, and God looks into the heart, right? So... The reason, at least in that story, that God chooses David, the littlest, the least of his brothers, and maybe the least of professions, although we know that there's a history of Jewish leaders who come from shepherd backgrounds, um, God chooses David because of the quality of David's heart, because of who David is on the inside. Okay, good. So that's one thing we know about David. What else do we know about King David? Yeah. He had to flee for his life at one point. Good. So David actually uh, had a very tumultuous life. So when he was pronounced king, there was already a king of Israel, even though God had uh, said that that king was going to be uh, have to leave the throne. That king, of course, was not particularly happy about that decision. Uh, And so when David is announced as king, um, that king, Saul, makes it a point to try to hunt down and kill David. Uh, And so for 
years, David is on the run for his life from King Saul, from a really uh, murderous and mad King Saul who wants nothing more than to annihilate this uh, son of Jesse, right? So, um, so, I don't think that was my phone. So, we know that about David, right? He was fleeing from his life uh, in that instance as well. Once he became king, it was not peaches and cream for David. He was constantly at war when he was uh, king. And, uh, and in fact, one of his sons even led a rebellion against him. Um, uh, we are in the south here, so we should know our, our William Faulkner, right? And uh, Faulkner wrote a book uh, um, after um, uh, this story, um, I mean, uh, or inspired in some ways by this story, um, Absalom, Absalom, right? David's son, Absalom, Absalom, uh, led a rebellion against King David, um, which ultimately, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but it's, I mean, it's, it's an old text, so if you haven't read it by now, you know, I'm not, and I don't feel that bad. So, uh, so David has to uh, uh, witness the death of his son, Absalom, who had led a rebellion against him, which is, uh, um, you know, not only was the, it, the, the war painful and blood and brutal, but uh, but also to have to witness your son's death as a consequence of that war uh, was uh, was powerful. So there, I mean, and then war after war, battle after battle in David's life, um, uh, uh, he was uh, um, not the kind of king who just you know lived it up in the palace. Um, although he did some of that too. So what else do we know about King David? <laughs> He was a musician. Beautiful. He was a musician. Um, and that's, in fact, um, one of the ways that we are told that he knows King Saul is King Saul had uh, fits of depression or something. Um, the, the, Torah, the, the text calls it some kind of evil spirit. You know, he had, a, he had melancholy. And, uh, and they found David, who was supposedly a beautiful musician, uh, to come and uh, play music for King Saul to calm him down. Um, and uh, um, the, the rabbis of the Talmud uh, make a lot of uh, David's uh, musical ability, and it's one of the reasons, in addition to the fact that lots of the Psalms are ascribed to him by name, um, because he was such a, a, a talented musician, say, well, he could have been the author of the Psalms because he had that kind of soul, that kind of spirit. Musician. What else, what else do we know? Right. Right. Okay. Yes. So. Well, he he had relationship issues. Okay. Well, so all right. I'm I'm not gonna weigh I'm not gonna weigh in on the on the Jonathan issue other than to say that he uh, and King Saul's son Jonathan were extremely close um, and uh, and and really the model for for friendship in the in the Bible. Whether or not they were romantic partners, the the text doesn't really say. So it really is entirely speculative either way. Um, I mean, it would, if you ask me, it would be perfectly fine if they were. Um, and it, it would be surprising if the text wouldn't directly comment on that. Um, but in any event, uh, it was a special close relationship like the United States and England, right? So, um, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, uh, but, he, but he, had, he, had, he had close relationships, but he also had uh, uh, challenging relationships 
mentioned King Saul before, but of course we, uh, uh, um, uh, we just uh, heard mention of a woman named Bathsheba. Um, Bathsheba was a, uh, a woman, the wife of uh, a guy named Uriah the Hittite, um, who uh, King David from his palace saw uh, bathing luxuriously on her roof, and David said to himself, it's good to be the king, right? I must have her. So, uh, so David went and, uh, and, and had her, and then realized he liked her so, I'm making a long story short, he realized he liked her so much that he would try to uh, get her husband out of the picture. Um, so he sends Uriah to the front lines to battle the Philistines, and Uriah dies, and he gets to uh, uh, um, live happily ever after with Bathsheba. Of course, it's not happily ever after, um, although um, uh, one of the um, uh, uh, results of that union was uh, his successor, King Solomon. Um, uh, but it is, it is probably, I mean, um, it's not this, so every uh, uh, Biblical character has, you know, like a tragic flaw, a great sin. Uh, David's tragic flaw, the, the thing that he's punished for, or at least not rewarded for, um, you know, like Moses isn't able to go to the promised land because he struck the rock, right? Um, David, his big thing was that he wanted to build the temple in Jerusalem, which may or may not be relevant to what we're talking about tonight. He wanted to build the temple in Jerusalem, and God wouldn't let him build the temple in Jerusalem, would only let his son because David was... Uh, his hands were too bloody. He fought too many battles, too much of a warrior. Um, making a statement, of course, I think that, uh, that, that God's um, objective and, um, and strongest desire is for peace, and so blood can't uh, uh, taint the sanctuary. Um, but you would think that that story would have been David's uh, tragic flaw, right? His, un- his undoing. Um, and it certainly is something that he's taken to task for in, in the text. Okay, good. What, someone mentioned a couple other things about David. What else do we know about David? He slew Goliath. He slew Goliath, right? So this is another one of David's you know, major challenges, major battles that he had in his life. He had to face down the great champion of the Philistines, this little shepherd boy from Bethlehem. Um, and uh, mirac- maybe miraculously, maybe just smartly, he was able to slay Goliath. So another one of the seemingly insurmountable obstacles and battles David has in his life that he's able to overcome. Again, I think relevant to this uh, text. Any other things that we know about David? Yeah. It didn't seem like he was a, a very wise father. He seemed to favor some children, which caused a lot of jealousy, a, little, a lot of strife in the household, yeah. always. Yeah, his kids were problematic, um, which, is, uh, which is something that uh, you find among biblical characters, even, uh, even the great heroes, um, which, uh, which, which is, to, I think, very instructive, you know, that, uh, that even great people can be terrible parents. Maybe sometimes they're predisposed to be terrible parents. Um, sometimes, no matter how good a parent you are, um, uh, your kids don't turn out the way you would want them to. I mean, so there's, um, there's a lot of, uh, of lessons there. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, David's kids uh, did not turn out, I think, the way that he would have wanted them to. I mean, we, we just, I just mentioned to you that one of them uh, ended up uh, hung because of rebellion. So, Okay. So let's keep those things that we know about David in mind as we look at this psalm. Because the psalmist wanted us to. Right? Okay, so we get, The Lord is my light and my help. Whom shall I fear? So I love that opening. What does it mean for God to be our light? What do we use light for? Guidance, good, to illuminate the darkness, right? To, to show us things that we couldn't see before, 
right, to uh, to uncover the hidden. That's precisely what uh, what what many the commentators say. So Abraham Ibn Ezra, um, who's a fantastic commentator of the of the Bible, says his first comment is: There are those who say, "My light at night," right. So my light refers to at night, meaning. Where the psalmist is asking God to be uh, his light um, in a place where he can't see what's going on. For since there is no light there, the person becomes afraid. Right? So not only is darkness um, uh, um, um, not only does darkness make it impossible to move forward because we don't really know where we're going or dangerous to move forward because we don't know where we're going. It also can produce a lot of fear, right? When I, where, when I don't know the right way to go in my life, um, where, when I, when I uh, don't know what lays ahead of me, um, when I don't know what the future holds, um, that's very, I don't know about you, but for me, that's very um, uh, anxiety provoking, right? And so to say, the Lord is my light and my help, I think the first thing it's saying is that the relationship that the psalmist has to God is that God for him is that which opens up pathways um, when no pathways were seen before. Shows the way when we didn't know the way before. Enables uh, the darkness to be illumined so as to make it less terrifying and less scary. Right? So God is my light means that God is that which helps me move forward in my life when I feel stuck, right? And God is my help, right? So the, the Hebrews are uri ve'yishi. God is my light and God is my help. Okay, so there are two texts from, the, from elsewhere in the Bible that I just want to bring to your attention for those lines because God is my light, we talked about. God is my help is a slightly different thing. So uh, Micah says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Right? A similar kind of idea, echoing that idea that, uh, that, that when we say that God is a light, God is helping us uh, see things that we couldn't see before. What does it mean for God to be our help? So another place where that language is uh, used, where God is described as yishi, uh, uh, right, which is uh, um, just to give props to our Christian uh, uh, friends, uh, the Hebrew name of Jesus is um, a conjugate of that word, yesha, right? Uh, I think Yeshua is uh, how they say that uh, Jesus' Hebrew name uh, was, right? Same root, yud shin ayin, um, and uh, not to be um, so, you know, uh, like scholarly critical about this, but there are theories that um, that there was no, in fact, historical Jesus, um, that, uh, or if there was, that wasn't his name, and the name was given to him uh, lit- from a literary perspective, because um, wouldn't it be great if the person who was going to be the salvation for all mankind could be named salvation, right? Because that's what that word means. Um, so, that word comes in other places in that... Gary, you have your hand up? No, I was going to say that there's another word for help, Ezra. Mm. Which, and so there's really a subtle difference, I think, between what Yishmi implies right. and what Ezra Good. So what do you see as the difference? Well, Yishmi is, is a sense of, of saving, right? Like, protect, there's an element of protection. Yeah. Whereas Ezra is sort of building up, right? Someone who builds me up and 
helps me to have courage. Right. Good. Um, so there, there is a, a more dramatic element to uh, Yishi, to my, to, to God being my. Uh, the, the JPS translates it as help, but I think that uh, the real sense of it is salvation. And the, and the way I think we should think about it is the other con- another context that the word is used, which is in Exodus chapter 15, the song at the Red Sea. Right, the the uh, Moses and the Israelites sing, Oziv Zimrat Yah Vayehi Li Lishua. Right, that God is uh, my strength and my might, and God has become my salvation, my deliverance. Right, so think about that moment at the Red Sea. Right, what is it? The, the Israelites are trapped with the impassable sea on one side and Pharaoh's charging army on the other side. Right, it's certain death. They don't know what to do, and then all of a sudden Moses goes into the water and lifts up his rod, and the sea splits, and they're able to go through on dry land. Right, a, a, a miracle described in the Torah, whether or not it happened historically, a miracle described in the Torah. Um, that's the sense of Yeshi. That's the sense of salvation. Salvation is you're closed on all sides. There's really no option. You feel stuck. You feel down. There's there's no there's no hope, right? And then all of a sudden, a pathway opens up that you can walk through. So when we say God is my light and my help, or light and my salvation, we're talking about a God who shows us things that are previously hidden and opens up pathways for us that we felt were previously closed. Right? Now, I need to take a step back for that because I don't think that you need to believe, and this is going to be a theme I'm going to hit on uh, throughout, I don't think that you need to believe in a supernatural God to view God in that way. Because that which you can access that gives you light in the dark places and that opens up pathways that you didn't feel existed, that you can call God. Right? So it works both ways. A definition of God is one who shows you what you can't see and opens up pathways that you didn't know existed before. Right? And if we talk about this being a psalm about prayer... I think it's worth thinking about prayer in that way as well, right? That, we're, that when we pray, at least when I pray, I'm not praying for a uh, supernatural God, a you know, genie in a bottle to swoop down and solve my problems. What I'm praying for is light and help. What I'm praying for is illumination for the dark places in my life, for uh, enlightenment. And what I'm praying for is... Uh, to have new pathways open up for me where I feel trapped and stuck. Right? And I don't need a supernatural God to swoop down and lift me up and put on armor and carry me through the wilderness. I just need my mind to be open. I need my heart to be open. Right? Whom should I fear? Right? So if, if, I'm, if I'm able to access that kind of power to help me move forward in life when, when the options seem closed and when I don't know what to do, then there's really nothing to be afraid of. Right? Because any situation that I'm in, I can handle. Any enemy that I, can, that I confront, I can handle, I can deal with. Because I know how to move forward. I know the way forward. It doesn't matter which way I'm going to go. All I need to know is that I will get there. I'll get out, right? If I know that, the, that, uh, that, that God splits seas when there's a sea in front of you and an army behind you, right? 
I don't need necessarily God to actually split a sea for me. I just need to know that I don't need to be afraid of that sea and that army. Because if I focus myself the right way, a way will present itself. And I think that that's true for, for us in, in our lives, right? There, uh, there are times where we feel really trapped and stuck. But the truth of the matter is, I will bet for each and every one of you, at some point or another, you realized a way forward. And once you realized that way forward, you said, oh, maybe I didn't need to be as scared of that, or as pained by that, or as anxious about that as I was beforehand. Right? So this is trying to put the cart before the horse. Fear is an unhelpful way of approaching the problem. Right? Looking for light and help, that's the way to approach the problem. What would it look like to move forward? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? Right? So the biblical poetry kind of works that way. It, it does like couplets that basically mean the same thing twice. Uh, this is pretty brutal. When evil men assail me to devour my flesh, it is they, my foes and enemies, who stumble and fall. Should an army besiege me, my heart would have no fear. Should war beset me, still would I be confident. Now, again, I don't think that this is uh, saying, okay, you know, if you're right with God, if you're good with God, then you have, you know, supernatural armor around you all the time, right? So if you're just righteous enough, if you just pray hard enough, or you just say the right things, then God is going to uh, uh, put, like, stain guard on you. And it's like those commercials where, like, the stain guard's on the clothes, and you, like, throw the, you know, uh, um, mustard on the clothes, and it just, like, slides right off, right? That's the image I have. Or, or, uh, or like, those fantasy movies where, um, oh, it's like this. It's like... Uh, I'm glad I get to work in another Star Wars reference, although I'm, I regret the one I'm going to give you. Uh, so, um, uh, in Star Wars Episode One, um, you know the Jar Jar Binks episode of Star Wars, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the droid army is fought, fighting on Gungan, and they have a big force field around them that all the you know fire, all the uh, all the blasters can't get through. Right. So, when you just read this. On its service, that's the sense that it gives off, right? If you just get right enough with God, then it'll be like you have a force field in front of you and no enemies can get at you, right? They'll try to get at you, but they stumble and fall, right? So I don't think that that's what it's saying. I think it's saying that if you approach life in a certain way and you approach your, uh, um, uh, your directionality in life in a certain way, your enemies will be irrelevant. The problems will be irrelevant. Because you'll know that you can work through them. You'll know that you can move past them. You know how to weave uh, through the challenges. Right? That's my light and my help. Right? That's the confidence that knowing that there is light and that there is help if you access it. Right? If you utilize moments in your life where you can say, what is the way forward? What is a pathway that I'm not seeing? Instead of focusing on the fear of the enemies attacking you, right, then a pathway will present itself. Right? I find this so often in my life that I get wrapped up in the anxiety and the fear of what's going to be or what's going to happen or you know, what would, if I made X, Y, or Z decision, well, what are the consequences, etc. Right? And I get so wrapped up in my head about the, the fear of 
failing or falling or stumbling or who's going to hate me if I make this decision, right? All of that, right? And what this is saying is if you focus your mind the right way, none of those considerations are relevant. Right? The fear is irrelevant. Sometimes fear can be a teacher, but what is relevant is thinking about the directionality, which way to go. <coughs> and again, you have this do out this couplet of, you know, should an army besiege me, my heart would have no fear. Should war beset me, still would I be confident. And actually the Hebrew is, in this I would be confident. Bezot an And the commentators, classical commentators say, you know, what is the this? Right? This is that God is my light and my help. Right? It all goes back to this uh, light and help thing. Okay, now we get to the, the core, and you see why I titled it the way I did. One thing I ask of the Lord, only that do I seek. To live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to frequent his temple. All right, so it, uh, it, if you were following along with that, um, you will notice that in good Jewish style, uh, this author says he's going to ask God for one thing and asks for three things. Okay? Um, it just is what it is. Um, um, in, in fact, I think he's not really asking for three things. I think he's, uh, and a lot of the commentators go, you know, go through hoops to try to say how they're actually all really one thing because they want to make him an honest person and say he's going to ask for one thing. Um, and, you know, the, the one thing he asks of God. So um, it makes me think of, uh, you know, the, the genie in the lamp, right? And um, so what is, the, what is the first wish that you're supposed to have when you have a, a, a genie in a lamp? You find your Aladdin, you go to the Cave of Wonders, you find the genie in a lamp. What's the first wish that you should wish for, Harry? Yeah, exactly, right? I wish for a thousand wishes. That's what you should wish for, right? So, so that's, that's, you know, in addition, one thing I ask God, fine. I can understand asking God one thing. If the one thing you're asking for is, I want to ask for a million things, right? Let me ask for a million things. And, uh, and that's what, in, uh, we'll bring it back to Robin Williams for a second, in, in the movie Aladdin, right? He, the, the rules of the game that he says to Aladdin before is that he can't do anything um, that violates nature, Right? So you can't bring back the dead. He's not pretty. You wouldn't like it. Right? So, um, and uh, you can't bring back the dead. And uh, you can't wish for more wishes. That's cheating. Okay? <laughs> so I think that that's actually what, what's happening here. And that's true, I think, of God, too. I think that God can't do anything supernatural. I think that God can't do anything that is beyond the physical limitations of space and time. Um, and, um, and I think that... Uh, um, that God doesn't, uh, um, doesn't act like a genie granting a thousand wishes. So let's look closely at what he asks for. He asks for, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to frequent his temple. Okay? So basically, if you sum those up into one thing, what would you say the one thing he asks for is? Shelter. Shelter. Good. Good. What else? What other thoughts? Yeah. To be in God's presence. I want to be in God's presence. Yes, Good. Yeah, God's presence. Good. 
I was, uh, maybe I'm a little bit more cynical than you. I, I, I wanted to say um, he gets one wish to ask God, and he doesn't ask for more wishes. He asks to be in shul more often, right? Um, which may be, which may be why we read this psalm uh, leading up to the high holidays, right? Because you should know that all you wish for is to be in synagogue for a long time, right? Okay, good. Your wish will be granted very soon. Yeah. Yeah, so the beauty is an interesting translation. The Hebrew is lachazot binoam adonai. Noam. And noam is more like the peace, right? Or the, the tranquility, the harmony. The welfare, right. The welfare, right. Um, uh, so the beauty is an interesting word there, but I think beauty uh, is, is being used like more like, uh, more like balance. Um, so... Noah, Noah, right? As in, as in, we say Eitz Chaim Hila Machazikim Ba Vechol Tomchei Hameushar, right? The, the uh, Torah is a tree of life to those who hold faster, and all who who take hold of it are happy. Durachei Darchei Noam, right? Its ways are ways of pleasantness. Uh, and all of its pathways are peace. But there, right, that's biblical poetry. There, uh, Noam and Shalom are supposed to be basically synonyms, right? So here, the Hebrew term that's translated as beauty is actually more like Shalom. It's more like peace. It's more like wholeness, right? So, um, so to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon or to see the peace of God and to frequent his temple. So I want to look at uh, um, uh, each of those things. But um, so look at uh, um, uh, number, text number two. Rabbi uh, Simcha Raz talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Um, and you see the, there's a, the, the word dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life or live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and then it has to frequent right? so here's what he says there's an apparent contradiction here dwell or live as our translation has it live has a sense of permanency about it but to frequent implies a measure of transience King David's desire was to dwell in the house of the Lord on a permanent basis all the days of his life but since permanent dwelling can be tainted with a suspicion of habit and routine, he further requested to frequent. A person who comes to visit frequently has a taste of something new each time. And so King David's request was to be a permanent resident in the house of the Lord, but with a level of constant renewal as though he were visiting frequently, as though he were coming to visit anew God's temple. Right? I love that. That when it says... Um, that he's, he's saying, I want to live in God's house, but also to, do, to frequent God's house. Um, what he's saying is that, um, that there's, a, there's a way in which um, um, spiritual ecstasy, insight, uh, illumination, whatever you want to call it, can become mundane, right? Um, we can become desensitized to it. Uh, so you, uh, you, you fall in love with a spiritual experience, you want to do it over and over again, and over time it starts feeling stale, you don't have the same feeling from it. So he says, let me be here, be in that kind of feeling all the days of my life, but let each time I do it make it feel new. Which I think circles back to 
what we said at the beginning, God is my light and my help, right? Well, for God to be my light and my help, if I'm in, you know how our eyes adjust to the darkness, right? And our eyes adjust to light too, right? So we become, in a way, desensitized to light. We become desensitized to uh, the pathways that open up for us. So what the psalm says here is, um, is uh, uh, be a permanent dweller in uh, the insight uh, cold from uh, prayer and meditation, but frequent it, right? Don't let it become stale. Don't let it become habitual. Now, Abraham is, Ibn, uh, Rabbi Ibn Ezra uh, talks about this uh, same thing, and he says to frequent means he must not look out for good as against bad, um, as in mean? Leviticus. Uh, so there it's talking about um, um, evaluating the uh, <coughs> value of sacrifices. Um, but uh, I don't want to get bogged down in, the, in, in Leviticus, because um, what he does with it, he says, the reason is the priests who sat constantly in the temple taught Torah to King David and instructed him. Okay, so um, when it says he must not look out for good, that's the word frequent, is look out. Right? And it's talking about uh, the priest who would be in the temple evaluating um, uh, sacrifices, right? And so he picks up on that to say, the reason is that the priest sat constantly in the temple, taught Torah to King David, and instructed him. Again, you have a connection between what the psalmist is asking for of God, and uh, the result is instruction, teaching, right? That's what Torah is, after all. It comes from the root Torah. Um, which means to instruct, right? It's the it's it's a it's a, a, a way to discern the pathway forward, to know what right living is, right? So what we pray for when we pray is not for God to save us from trouble, not for God to put a force field over us, but we pray for the ability to have insight, insight into ourselves, insight into the world, right? And that's what uh, what he's asking for here. Malbim says. One thing I ask of the Lord, only that do I seek. Because in this question are included all the questions. Right? That's the equivalent of, he wishes for a million wishes. Because to ask for the ability to, uh, to, to, uh, to be able to pray in the sense of seeking out insight and new pathways. Right? That's, if that's what prayer is then the ability to do that actually answers all the questions. There's nothing else that I could ask God for that I couldn't get by the ability to have insight about the way forward in life and knowledge about um, uh, what are pathways that might be open when everything else seems closed. Right? There's nothing else that I could ask for. And that's what Malbeam is hinting at. Um, so it seems at first blush like he's starting too small, right? The one thing you want to ask is that you want to go to shul more, but you come to realize that the request is what makes everything else possible. You can be strengthened and secure in your faith only if you work to nurture that faith. And that's what we are doing, I think, or that's what I try to do when I pray, is not ask God for things to come to me, but ask for... Uh, myself to open up to ways of living that I may have been closed off to. Right? That's what I do when I sit and I pray. Right? Um, okay. He will shelter me in his pavilion on an evil day, grant me the protection of his tent, raise me high upon a rock. That's verse 5. Um, 
Now, there's another high holiday connection here. So the words that are used here in Hebrew are ki yitzpaneni besukah biyom ra'ah. Right? That God will shelter me in his sukkah on an evil day. Yastireni beseter ohalo betsor yeromeni. Right? That uh, uh, grant me the protection of his tent. His tent here is probably an allusion to the temple. Raise me high upon a rock. Um, what do we know? Tell me, describe to me a sukkah. Okay, all right. Well, actually, it only needs up two and a half sides, okay? Um, uh, so two and a half sides, and it's a temporary structure. Good, it's got to be a temporary structure. What does that mean, a temporary structure? What does it mean? Not up around. Good, not up your round, not sturdy. You said flimsy, there, right? It's a little bit flimsy, right? Depending on your sukkah, I've seen very nice, sturdy sukkahs, right? But it's a little, compared to the houses that most of us live in, it's flimsy, Right? It doesn't have a whole roof. Oh, you, is that you were going to say? Permeable. Right. It's got a permeable roof. Right? You have to be able to uh, um, uh, see the stars. You, you have to more shade than some, but you have to be able to see the stars. Right? Rain can get in. Snow can get in. Right? You are not impermeable to the elements in a sukkah. Right? And so that's magnificent what he says. Right? He will shelter me in his sukkah on an evil day. Because what does that mean? It gives you what? Shelter. It gives you shelter, but what? But not permanent and not total protection, right? You are, you are exposed to the elements in a sukkah. You may be protected a little bit, right? So if it's really cold outside and you're in a sukkah, maybe it's a little bit less cold. It may be really raining outside, so you're in a sukkah, there's a little bit of protection to, for, from the rain, but not a lot. When you're in a sukkah, you have a little bit of shelter, but it's permeable to the outside. Right? You are still vulnerable. You still have to make your choice. You still have to make your choice. Good, right? You have to decide to go in or out of the sukkah, right? Um, that's, that's true, too. So, the, so here, here again, right, why I say that, that this psalmist is not asking a, a, a supernatural God to do supernatural things. Is he's not, he could have said, shelter me in an iron fortress. That's what I want on an evil day, right? Make sure nobody can get to me. That's not what he says. He says, shelter me in a sukkah. I know that I will never be totally invulnerable, totally uh, um, uh, protected from any harm that might come to me. That's just not the way of being human in the world, right? There's just no way we can live to not be ever in danger, to not be ever uh, at risk, to not be ever threat. So that's not what he's asking. He's not asking for the impossible. He's saying, I want to be in presence of God, I want to be helped by God. I want God to help uh, uh, illuminate my life and be around me and near me and surround me. But I know that God can't do the impossible. Yeah. And I don't want to be disempowered. Right? Mm. Right? Because you build the sukkah yourself. Well, and the sukkah gives you protection, but you still have the freedom to act. Right? I mean, that is, when, if you're in too much protection, it's like being in jail. You, yeah. can't, you can't get out. Right. right? That there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no exit. Yeah. Um, and I love this, right? So he says, raise me high upon a rock. So Robert Alter talks about the two nouns of, uh, of um, uh, the sukkah and the tent. And he says, uh, this is number five on page two. The two nouns are drawn from the lexicon of nomadic habitation. Right there it is. Right? These are, these are uh, um, uh, impermanent dwellings. 
that are vulnerable to the outside, that, uh, that we have to help make ourselves, right? Those are all elements of, of life, real elements of life. And prayer is not divorced from light, right? We go into the moments of prayer acknowledging our humanity and knowing that we can only have God work with us within the context of our humanity, not outside of it, right? And um, so that's nomadic habitation. But here they're used in subtle metaphorical understatement as designations for a much more solid and imposing structure, as the third term in the sequence, rock, suggests. So I actually think that I I, uh, am... uh, hesitant to argue with a scholar of his level, but I think he's wrong about that. Um, I think that the three things are actually very much in line with each other. You have a sukkah, you have a tent that are very uh, kind of flimsy dwellings. The rock that he says, the image I have of you place me upon a rock, right, was the language, you uh, raise me high upon a rock. Think about like a raging sea or a raging river. Right? And you try to get to high ground. The highest ground is a rock or a hill that's, that's in the sea or in the river. You get on top of it. The waves are still crashing at you. You're holding on for dear life. Right? I went whitewater rafting once and I did this on a rock. Right? Um, that's, what, that's the image I get when it says you raise me high up on a rock. Right? That's the life that we're living. That's the life that we're on. We're asking God, just give me a little bit above the waves. Right? Try to give me a little bit higher. Try to give me a little bit of protection. A little bit of a boost. Right? I can't be totally impervious to the pain and the, and the uh, uh, suffering and tragedies of life, but help lift me a little bit. Right? That's what this moment, that's what the prayer is, is for a little lift, a little guidance, a little help. A solid foundation. Yeah, that's great. A solid foundation. Okay, let's, let's move on. We have a, a lot of ground to cover, so not a lot of time. So, um, now is my head high over my enemies round about. I sacrifice in his tent with shouts of joy, singing and chanting a hymn to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, have mercy on me, answer me. In your face my heart says, seek my face. O Lord, I seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not thrust aside your servant in anger. You have ever been my help. Do not forsake me. Do not abandon me. O God, my deliverer. Um, okay. So first of all, we, we come back to that same Hebrew word, yishi. That's my deliverer here, even though they translated it for another English word earlier for some reason. I don't really understand. Right? My salvation, my recalling God, we're coming back to that idea. Right? That's, the, that's the essence to this psalmist of what God is. God is that which opens up pathways for us that we didn't know existed before when we're stuck on all sides. Okay, and when it says, so it focuses then on being able to see God's face. Show me your face, don't hide your face from me. So those are um, technical terms in the Bible. Uh, Seeing God's face and uh, God hiding God's face are technical terms. So God hiding God's face. Okay, so let's look at, uh, I hate doing this, but um, it's something that I wrote. And... um, (laughs) and, I always, whenever that happens, this is actually the first time I've ever done something like this, but I think of um, my teacher, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, who has written a lot uh, and wonderful stuff, if you've never read any of this stuff. And I had him as a professor in uh, rabbinical school, and, you know, he would teach a class on ethics or Jewish law, and, you know, periodically we'd have to read Dorf's books, because he's an essay, uh, an expert, rather, in, in so many areas of Jewish law and ethics, 
Um, and so he's a very humble guy, and, uh, and so he, like, his face would get all red, and like, he'd want us to be there, he's like, okay, what does Dorf say? You know, so, um, so here's, what, here's what I, um, so here's, I was uh, actually writing an essay on Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing, which um, uses language of God's face, right? Ya'er Adonai Panavelecha, that God should shine God's face upon you, and also Yisa Adonai Panavelecha, let God lift God's face to you. So I was trying to talk about what it is that we're saying when we're praying for those things and the priestly blessings. So here's something I wrote. According to Jacob Milgram, who's a biblical scholar, the expression is best understood in light of its semantic opposite. This is the expression of Ya'er Adonai Panavelecha, may God light God's face to you. There's the light again, by the way. Um, so that phrase is best under, understood in light of its semantic opposite, the hiding of God's face, indicating God's anger. It is thus best understood to mean, may God be pleased with you. If we as individuals and as a collective fulfill our covenantal responsibilities, if we care wholeheartedly for the least advantaged, elevate the dignity of all human beings, fashion communities of justice and righteousness and strive toward peace, if ultimately we advance an agenda, uh, an agenda of oneness, of the fundamental unity of all that is, then God, the personification, source, and ultimate expression of that oneness, will be present in our world. All right, so what I'm saying there, what I was trying to say there, uh, in a kind of wordy way, is, um, <laughs> is that uh, um, you could read that, uh, the, the hiding of God's face, as you know, a, a reward and punishment type thing. Right, um, you don't fulfill the covenant, and so God, you know, hides God's face. Right, God go, is angry with you. God, is, you know, yells at you. Right, and if you do the covenant, right, God is very happy with you and, and, and rewards you. Um, but I was actually arguing about it, as I've mentioned a couple times in this class and, and some other contexts, as a, a, as a result or a consequence rather than a reward or a punishment. Right? The consequence of doing certain things is having God's face shine, right? Not that God is happy with what we're doing, but the result of doing certain things is to bring God's presence in the world. The doing certain things brings God's presence in the world, right? Um, so that's what I'm saying there, right? That uh, um, in such a world, we will have no need for supernatural protection from an external power, for we will already have built a world in which there is only godliness, only goodness, a world in which there is no evil or trouble. The call for God's face to shine on us is, in this sense, a challenge to make God more present in our lives and world. It's about discerning God's lure, making those choices that will enable us to thrive, but also that prevent us from becoming hard-hearted and that enable us to support the thriving of others. It is about habituating ourselves to make the choices to follow God's lure and thereby making godly action instructive and reflexive in our lives. So when he says here, I seek your face, don't hide your face from me. What I hear in that is saying, I want to live a life in which godliness is manifest, in which goodness is manifest, in which oneness is manifest. And I'm hoping that by this process of praying, right, we call it tefillah, which is really uh, um, so, uh, searching oneself. This process of tefillah, this process of praying, will help bring me to a place where I can live a life that uh, embodies those godly qualities and inspires me to act in the world and live a certain way to help advance that agenda, right? So that's what prayer is about. It's about 
who we are and helping us live the best lives that we possibly can, giving us insight and pathways to doing so, and also inspiring us, hopefully, to think outside of ourselves to how we can make this world a more fitting place for the divine to dwell. That's, by the way, why, uh, according to Jewish law, all prayer spaces uh, have to have windows, I think. All prayer spaces have to have windows. Um, Because I think that prayer is not only about looking inside ourselves, it's also about thinking about what are the needs out there that hopefully in the course of our prayer will be inspired and connected to go and take care of, right? Uh, And I know, and I thought this for a long time, like what a uh, um, narcissistic enterprise prayer is, right? You sit in a room for three hours and like sometimes you feel good about yourself, sometimes you feel bad about yourself, but you're only thinking about yourself, right? But I don't think that that's Jewish prayer. I think Jewish prayer is, uh, is uh, looking into our hearts and looking into a sacred script and a sacred uh, tradition to be able to discern not only what's the right way forward for me, but what am I called to do out there for everybody else. Right? And I think that that's what he's saying here. He said, don't hide your face from me. Right? Help me make my life and the world a manifestation of the divine. Though my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will take me in. Okay, I'm actually going to uh, leave that one for now. That one is uh, um, uh, uh, has a lot and is uh, uh, dense. I, I have a few comments on that, but I'm going to actually leave it for now. Um, show me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my watchful foes. Right? I think, again, saying a similar thing, right? Uh, show me the way to go. Not just show me the way, show me your way. Right? What is the godly way to act in my life and in the world. Do not subject me to the will of my foes, for false witnesses and unjust accusers have appeared against me. Again, we come back to the to the enemies, um, but I think that the uh, issue of the enemies. Sorry, I'm looking for the page. Of, oh, there you go. Um, um, uh, Actually, you know what? Can we go back? I do want to say one thing I realized about uh, the father and mother business, okay? So uh, I'm going to skip Robert. I mean, there's just there's so much there, and there's so much that we can talk about that psychologically. Um, but it did evoke one thing for me that we've actually, that we looked at last week, okay? So last week in Deuteronomy 11, um, we uh, talked about um, uh, what does God want of us, and, uh, and this description in, in that chapter, Deuteronomy 10, I should say, um, about uh, the nature of God. And we read there, uh, I have this, uh, text 9 on page 3, For the Lord your God is God supreme and Lord supreme, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and befriends the stranger, providing him with food and clothing. You too must befriend the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So when this author, and I don't think it's a, uh, um, just something that I noticed, and I, don't think, I think it may have been at least one intended meaning of this. Um, Though my father and mother abandoned me, if my father and mother abandoned me, what does that make me? An orphan, right? That's the, the, the uh, um, uh, gender-neutral term for the fatherless that we just saw in Deuteronomy. That makes me an orphan. And what do we know about God's relationship with orphans? According to that text that we just read in Deuteronomy, God protects them, right? God loves the weak and the disadvantaged. Right? And we're supposed to know from that that our responsibility as followers of God's path in the world is to care for the weakest and most disadvantaged. And so I think in a, in a, in a text that's talking about not only what is um, prayer supposed to do 
for me in my life to show me the way forward. In my life, it's also supposed to show me and, uh, and inspire me and illuminate for me what am I supposed to do out there in the world. And here we have an allusion to precisely what... Uh, a poetic illusion, but an illusion to precisely what the Torah says is central to who we're supposed to be as Jews. Right? I mentioned that last week, that no other mitzvah in the Torah is repeated as frequently as variations of that mitzvah. Right? To care for the, the orphan, the uh, widow, and the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and because God has a special concern and care for those people, therefore you should too. Right? And I think that that's not a coincidence that we, that we have here. Um, had I not the assurance that I would enjoy the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. <clears throat> so look at uh, Robert Alter here for a second. So he says this. I just have two comments on this um, that, that I think are, are, are wonderful. This last exhortation, whether of the speaker to himself or to an inv- individual member in his audience, is an apt summary of the psychology that informs this psalm. Oh, you know what? That's actually for the next one. So let's hold off for that. Um, uh, Sheila Peltz-Weinberg, this one is the right one. Um, this line is a fragment. That's true, that's why it's, uh, there are ellipses there. The beginning of a thought stranded in midair, which I refuse to complete. I don't want to put it into words or visualize a life without faith. It would be like the end of the verse, an empty chasm. Right? I, I don't think faith has to be a buzzword here, because I think faith is about, um, is about uh, trusting uh, um, enough that there are ways forward in life when uh, all uh, ways seem to be closed off. And that there is a potential for light even in our most uh, dark times. And that is a life that I certainly would not want to envision living without that kind of, uh, call it optimism, I call it hope. Hope is like the active version of optimism, right? The trust that... Um, that that the that the fear um, is uh, is distracting from the real issue, which is how do I live the right way, right? And if we can get past the fear and say um, and say that's not the way I want to live, I don't want to live in that uh, place of anxiety, then we move to a uh, a more um, uh, helpful and positive place. And then it closes. Had I. Had I not the assurance that I would enjoy the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, Rashi says, had I not, has dots on top of it. That's true, you don't have it in your text in the Hebrew, uh, but the word lule, um, the, la- the first word of the last line in Hebrew, if you look at it in a traditional Tanakh, has dots on top of it. Um, and so uh, that's a... Uh, um, a, a notation of the Masoretic editors in the 10th century of the of the Bible, um, but there, you see them in a number of places, and you don't always know what they're supposed to mean. So the rabbis use it as a of a, of a means of interpreting the text. Um, uh, although it's interesting that word lule. If, if who can tell me what that word is backwards? Elul. Elul, good, which is the name of this month, which may be another reason why the rabbis uh, connected this uh, psalm to the month of Elul and the high holiday season. Rashi says, had I not, has dots on top of it. According to the interpretation that our rabbis developed, the speaker is thinking, I know that you give reward to the righteous in the world to come, but I do not know if I have a portion among them or not. Right? That's had I not. Right? That it's, it's, uh, it's, it's doubt. Right? And again, so you have a speaker that's living in, in, uh, in the real world, in real life. There's still doubt. There's still anxiety. He's not certain. But what he's, I don't know if I'm going to get the reward of the righteous. 
I don't know if I'm going to have God's full protection. So what I do know, and I know what I need, is, um, is illumination and help. And then we have the last line. Can I ask you a yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. So, why is... Um, <clears throat> so, I don't have a good answer to the question. Um, I think that that's um, um, uh, a matter of interpretation. Um, it's possible that there was a conclusion to that line that was edited out of the text at one point. Um, it's possible that the author wanted to leave it deliberately vague, right? Um, I, I like what, um, what Sheila Peltz-Weinberg says about it, which is um, it wants that ellipsis to say, like, I don't even know what life would look like if I didn't have that kind of uh, uh, faith that God would show me the right way, right? I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in that world of fear. I don't want to live in that world of anxiety. I'm going to live in a world in which um, I will... Uh, always strive to look for the best pathway forward and the best way to help the world. That's what I'm going to live in. Uh, I'm not going to even entertain the then of that sentence. Um, And look to the Lord, be strong and of good courage, look to the Lord. Uh, Right, so that I think uh, summarizes, that's what Robert Alter said that that I meant to um, come back to. So this last exhortation, whether the speaker to himself or to an individual member of his audience, is an apt summary of the psychology that informs this psalm. It begins by affirming trust in God and reiterates that hopeful confidence sorry, reiterates that hopeful confidence but the trust has to be asserted against the terrors of being overwhelmed by implacable enemies. So again, I'm not sure if I agree with Robert Alter's uh, um, opinion here completely. Um, I think that it does uh, reflect the psychology of the psalm. Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, and the question is, is the speaker talking to himself or talking to us? It seems to me that the speaker is talking to us and not to himself. The speaker has, uh, has, has uh, I think, or the writer, the voice of the uh, psalm, the narrator of the psalm, um, has reached a point where um, uh, he uh, uh, knows what he is looking for. He has a confidence about, uh, about how, to, uh, how, to, how to move forward in life. And he's saying, if you are able to look at your life this way, if you're able to uh, think of God this way, if you're able to access God and godliness uh, this way, um, and that is the secret of hope and the secret of uh, not being consumed by fear and anxiety. Um, that's what it means being strong and of good courage, right? Be strong, be of good courage. Don't live in the place of fear and doubt, or fear and anxiety, I should say. Um, look to the Lord, right? Look to the Lord. Kaveh, by the way, means hope more than look, right? But Kaveh is also sort of like Kivun, like a direction, right? Go in this direction. Go in the direction of godliness. Go in the direction of good goodness. Look forward. Don't look backward. Don't look at all your sides. Look for the way forward. Gary? No, I think the 13 sets up 14. Yeah. So 13 is, God forbid that I would not have this assurance and things would go you know, awry. The answer is, look to the Lord. I mean, it's, 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 
the answer to the question that is set up in 13. Great. Good. So, uh, just so you, since you brought them up really quickly, so Radak uh, comments on look to the Lord a second time. He says it twice. Uh, for the speaker wants to ask that he will always have the hope that it will never cease from his heart, right? And I mentioned that in a sermon the other week that uh, the most cardinal Jewish sin is to lose hope, right? It's why the theme song, uh, the national anthem for uh, the state of Israel is the hope, right? Because it's central to what it means to be a Jew. And that means then that the, that the uh, act of prayer and the result of prayer is to strengthen and encourage hope. Right? Hope is never lost. It doesn't mean that the impossible is possible, but it means that in the realm of possible, hope is never lost. Yeah. It's, it's really all about sustaining Yeah. So, and then, and then Rachel Contraster, uh, I added here because she is reflecting on whether or not, uh, or what, what reason is that we, what's the reason that we recite the psalm during the uh, high holiday season? And she says, we can't know what God is writing on the page in the book of life, but we can ask for God not to desert us no matter the outcome. Um, and this psalm is, if nothing else, a psalm about um, inviting and asking God's presence um, in our lives and to come along with us in the path. Right? Don't leave me. Don't hide from me. Don't turn from me. Um, that is that has a certain degree of comfort for me. But more comforting to me is uh, uh, um, a sense of what it means to have God in my life, and that is um, a, a knowledge that um, that. I don't have to listen to my fears. I don't have to be driven by my fears. That um, that that a um, that a, a good life, um, that a happy life, that a healthy life, that a joyous life is possible um, if I look for the ways forward and if I seek the insight that can guide me forward, and that I have the possibility of making this world that kind of place, um, the kind of place that is infused with the spirit and meaning of. Uh, of, of godliness, of goodness, and of oneness. So for me, this psalm is a, a, a guiding light of prayer during the high holiday season when we're brought into the synagogue to do a lot of prayer and say, okay, what is this business that we're spending so much time doing? And I think the answer is to get in touch with ourselves and what we should do and what we should be doing with our life and also to discern what our purpose is for everybody else outside of ourselves. And with that uh, knowledge and that uh, um, uh, hopefully uh, inspiration, um, we can uh, carry forward with a meaningful and joyous and healthy uh, high holiday season and new year. Shalom.